Hello and welcome to the one and only Happily Ever After podcast. My name is Mason Sontag and I will be your storyteller for today. Today is a very special day uh, on the podcast because it is actually the last episode of season one. Woo! Yay! I'm going to take a bit of a break from the podcast, but I will be back in the new year with a whole new collection of stories for you to listen to. So, to wrap it all up, today we are going to hear The Prince with the Golden Mouth from The Wonder Tales from Tibet, which was a series of stories collected by Eleanor Myers Jewett. Before I get started, I want to acknowledge that I'm currently recording this podcast in Ithaca, New York, which is part of the traditional homeland of the Cayuga Nation and the Haudenosaunee Confederacy. All right. Are you ready? Let's go. Many, many years ago, there dwelt in a far country a Khan, who was great and good and dearly loved by his people. Yet no one in all his kingdom loved or admired him so much as did his faithful wife and young son. Truly, there never was a happier, more affectionate family. The three shared their joys and sorrows, their cares, their pleasures, and their secrets, and indeed one was scarcely ever seen without the other two. Now, the Khan and his family and the whole kingdom had in common one great sorrow. The country was watered by a clear, broad stream, and unless this flowed full and strong all the year, the land dried up. There was a great famine, and people died of hunger and thirst. At the source of this river lived two serpent gods, hideous monsters, and as evil as they were ugly. And every year these frightful creatures demanded a young man or maiden whom they might devour. Unless this desire was speedily fulfilled, they stopped the water at the head of the stream. It dried up, and the people began to suffer and then die. Many and many a time had the Khan and his counselors talked of the matter the whole night through, scheming, planning, wondering how they might save the young people of the land from this dreadful fate, but all to no avail. If the serpents did not get their yearly gift of precious human blood, the death of hundreds of men, women, and children was the result. And so it seemed better for one young man or maid to die each year than that so many should perish. The year rolled by, and the time had now come for this terrible sacrifice. Throughout the length and breadth of the land there was sorrow and anxiety. Fathers and mothers could scarce sleep for thinking that it might be the turn of their son or daughter to go to the head of the river and be cast into the cave of the monster serpents. Nowhere was there more unhappiness than in the family of the Khan, for he grieved for each lad and lass as if each were his own child. Seeing the care and sorrow in his father's face, the Khan's son, whose name, by the way, was Zwalu, thought long and earnestly. Surely, he kept repeating to himself, there must be some way in which I can help my father and free my country from this great curse. But no matter how hard he thought, no way presented itself to his mind. The fateful time drew ever nearer, and finally the very next day was the dreaded one on which the serpent gods would send a messenger, demanding by name some girl or boy in the kingdom. That night, Zwalu could not sleep for thinking of the tragedy of the morrow. Suppose I were the one, he thought, 
Of course, they would not really dare to ask for the Khan's son. But just suppose. And then he pictured to himself the sorrow of his father and mother, and his own horror at such a death. And we are no different, really, from the others, he said to himself. The fathers and mothers among our subjects must suffer as keenly as their king and queen would. And as for the boys and girls, they are really just like me. All at once, Zwalu sat up in bed and stared into the darkness. A great idea had entered his mind. I will go to these terrible serpent monsters myself, he breathed excitedly. I will offer myself to them, I, a Khan's son, if they will give up their frightful practice hereafter. There was little sleep for Zwalu after he had made up his mind to this deed. All night long he lay wide awake, planning how he would plead and argue with the serpents for the lives of his people, and getting up his courage to meet his fate and die bravely, as befitted a prince. Very early in the morning, before the sun was up, he arose, dressed himself, and slipped quietly from the palace. He had not gone far before he was startled by hearing a step behind him, and turning around he saw Sauron, a faithful friend, following him. Now, Sauron was a boy of his own age who had been brought up at the palace with him, as his servant and companion, and he and the prince loved each other as brothers. Oh, my master, said Sauron, running up behind Zualu, forgive me for having followed you. I have seen your trouble and anxiety these many days, and when you started forth all alone this morning, my heart misgave me that some ill might befall you. At first the prince was much annoyed that he should have been discovered, but as he looked at Sauron, he suddenly felt relieved to have a friend near, and he opened his heart and told all his plan of self-sacrifice. He feared Sauron would entreat him to give it up and go home, but his friend listened in silence to the end and then said, Thualu, your heart is noble, as princes should be. I cannot urge you to give up a deed so truly glorious. Only I beg you, and I will not be denied. Let me go with you and sacrifice myself also, for life without you would be worse than death, and mayhap if two of us give our lives, the serpents will be more than willing to leave our people in peace hereafter. The prince tried to dissuade his friend, but seeing it was of no use, he soon stopped, and the two lads continued on their way together toward the head of the stream. As they approached the cave where the serpents dwelt, they went slowly and softly, for they were minded, if possible, to get a good look at the monsters before they allowed themselves to be seen. Creeping up among the bushes by the side of the river, they soon came to an opening through which they could peer, and there, seated on the bank, they saw the two horrible creatures. One was a long, thick dragon-like being covered with scales of tarnished gold. The other was smaller, and apparently younger, and the scales on its back were as green as emeralds. They had neither seen nor heard the two lads, and in a moment the golden one began to speak. "'It is strange, brother,' said he, "'that these people are so ignorant and so faithful. "'They cannot very well help themselves, can they?' said the smaller green one. They know that if they fail in the sacrifice, we will dry up their stream, and then they will all perish. True, 
replied the other. But after all, it would be so easy to kill us, you know, if they only knew how. <laughs> but have they not sent armed soldiers against us in the past? said the green serpent, drawing himself up proudly. And have we not routed them all and slain them? Of course, swords could not hurt us, said the gold one contemptuously. But if they only knew enough to come out against us with thick oak staves, one well-aimed blow on the head from such a weapon would finish us. But luckily, they don't know that. And they are far too stupid ever to guess, so we are perfectly safe, said the green one. And then, chuckled the big golden monster, writhing the folds of his long body comfortably about him. To think what a man would gain by killing us. My head, cooked and eaten, could not only make a delicious meal, but it would give the eater power to pour forth gold from his mouth whenever he wanted to. And if anyone ate my head, said the green one, also chuckling, <laughs> emeralds would come from his mouth whenever he so desired. Lucky the stupid mortals will never know. Zwalu and his friend had heard enough. Trembling with excitement, they crept away from their hiding place, out of sound and sight of the serpents, and then fell to hugging each other for very joy of their discovery. They lost no time in making themselves huge oak staves, and armed with them, they walked back to where the serpents still sat lazily together on the bank of the stream. With a shout, they leapt from the bushes upon the unsuspecting monsters and attacked them. The fight was short and sharp. The great creatures turned upon the two boys viciously and lunged at them with their hard, metallic heads. But the lads dodged skillfully and brought down blow after blow upon their enemies until at last they made quite motionless. Now, said Prince Zualu, leading on his staff and breathing hard, huh, we must build a fire and cook ourselves a meal, and if the serpent god spoke the truth, we shall then be rich for the rest of our lives. With their knives they cut off the heads of their dreaded enemies, and, having built a fire of twigs, they cooked them well and then ate them. Zualu ate the golden head and declared it delicious, while Sauron said he had never tasted anything quite so good as the emerald green head. What a stee, said the prince when they had finished. How well the charm works! I wish that my mouth would pour forth gold! Scarcely had he finished speaking before a rain of bright gold coins fell from his lips, and the boys gathered them up in big handfuls and stowed them away in their pockets. Now let me try, said Sauron. I wish that my mouth would pour forth emeralds. Immediately, emeralds pattered to the ground in great profusion. What fun, said Sauron, gathering them up. Now let us hasten back to the palace and show your royal father all that we have accomplished. No, I don't let us go home yet, said the prince. One adventure is but a stepping stone to another, and I am minded to travel a bit and see what fortune we may meet by the way. With this marvelous gift of gold and emeralds, we should surely come by some strange and interesting experiences. To this plan, Sauron readily agreed. The two set forth with merry hearts and, finding an unfamiliar road, followed it. They knew not whither. All day long they traveled, meeting many wayfarers, but finding nothing in the shape of an adventure. 
In the late afternoon they reached a palm grove whence came shouts and cries and signs of a great commotion. Hurrying toward the scene of disturbance, they beheld half a dozen lusty boys fighting most brutally. Here, young fellows, cried the prince, stop that at once and tell us what you were fighting about. But the boys paid no heed to him at all. Stop, cried Zwallow again, shouting to make himself heard above the din. Stop, and I will show you a marvel the like of which you have never seen. Hearing this, the boys ceased fighting on the instant, and all turned and stared at Zwallow and Sauron. <laughs> marvel, did you say? exclaimed the leader scornfully. You can't show us a marvel greater than the one we have got right here. Have you something wonderful, too? asked the prince. Well, then, let us make a bargain. If my marvel is greater than yours, you shall give me yours. And if yours is greater than mine, I will give you each as much gold as two hands can carry. Hurrah! cried the boys delighted. Let us do it! They all gathered around in a circle, while their leader picked up from the ground a torn and battered cap. This, said he, is what we were fighting about, for each of us wants it for himself. This is a magic cap, and whoever puts it on remains invisible until he takes it off again. Show us a marvel equal to that, if you can. Softly, uttering a wish for gold, the prince opened his mouth, and immediately a great rain of coins tumbled to the ground. The boys fell upon themselves greedily, shouting, snatching, and fighting. Come, said Zwala to his friend. These boys are not worthy of owning such a treasure as the cap, and besides, my marvel is greater than theirs, so I am entitled to it. He caught up the ragged cap, put it on his head, and grasped Sauron's hand. Straight away, they both became invisible, and so passed through the midst of the fighting boys unnoticed, and continued on their way. This is a prize well worth having, said the prince, after they had walked a while, and taking the cap off, he hid it carefully in his bosom. Now, I wonder what our next adventure will be. They had not gone far before they came to a crossroads, where there was a great cloud of dust, and hearing shouts and angry words, they hastened to see what it all meant. In the midst of the dust were half a dozen ugly dwarves, fighting furiously, screaming and cursing at each other. You try your hand at this, said Zwala to his friend. This shall be your adventure. So... Sauron stomped upon the ground and called out, Stop! in a loud but cracking voice. But the dwarves paid no attention to him at all. Stop, I say! he repeated louder than before. I have a great marvel to show you. At the word marvel, the fighters ceased at once and stood staring at the two friends. Marvel, did you say? exclaimed the leader. Puh! I don't care how wonderful it is. It can't be as great as ours. What is yours? said Sauron. If it is as interesting as mine, you shall each have as many emeralds as your two hands can carry. At that, all the dwarves began to laugh scornfully. Show him, show him, they cried to their leader, and then we will rob him of all his emeralds, if in truth he has any. The leader turned and picked up a pair of old shabby-looking boots. These, he said, are magic, and if anybody puts even one of them on and makes a wish to be in any place under the sun... He will find himself there in the twinkling of an eye. That is indeed wonderful, said Sauron. And here is your pay. 
but in sooth you deserve neither boots nor emeralds. Then, to the great astonishment of the little men, Sauron, uttering a wish for emeralds, opened his mouth and poured them forth, a great stream of glorious green gems. With a shout, the dwarves snatched them up, pushing and tearing them from each other. Quick, said Sauron to the prince, put on your cap and take my hand, so that they will not see us. We can make better use of the magic boots than those wicked dwarfs can. So they each hastily slipped on a boot, and being invisible because of the magic cap, passed out from among the dwarves before they had stopped fighting over the jewels. And now, said Sauron, what we have on the boots, let us test their power by wishing to be somewhere. Very well, said Zwalu. I wish that we may be taken at once to a country that needs a king. Immediately, the two friends felt themselves picked up and whizzed through the air with such speed that they could see nothing and feel nothing but the wind rushing by their ears. Then they were put down gently upon the ground and found themselves in a strange country. Soon they saw a great procession of men, women, and children advancing towards them, and at their head walked an old man with snowy beard and hair and clad in long white garments. The people came straight up to the prince and Sauron, and there halted, while the old man addressed them in eager, trembling tones. "'You are strangers,' said he, "'and we are seeking strangers. I pray you, can you show us some magic sign whereby we may know that you are not as other mortals are?' "'Indeed,' said Prince Zwalu, "'we are no different from other men, but by great fortune we have this day become possessed of several wonders.' "'Show us! Show us!' cried the crowd in great excitement. "'This,' continued Zwalu, drawing the battered magic cap from his pocket, "'has the power of making its wearer invisible.' He put it on, and the people cried out in wonder and anxiety. "'Where are they? Where are they? They are gone! Find them! They are truly the ones!' "'No, we are still here,' said the prince, removing the cap. "'But why does it matter so much to you?' And why are you so anxious to see our marbles? Show us more! Show us more! The crowd shouted, and the old man in white tried vainly to quiet them, for he was as excited as they were. These boots, Zwalu went on, pointing to the magic ones, are also very wonderful, for they will bear us wheresoever we wish to be in the twinkling of an eye. It was by their means that we came here. Don't try them! We'll believe you! cried somebody as if fearful of losing them, and the crowd surged eagerly forward again. And finally, said Zwalu, smiling at them, thoroughly enjoying their wonder, my friend and I have a little trick which may interest you. Opening their mouths, the two began to pour forth gold and emeralds and toss them in great handfuls among the crowds. If they were excited before, the people now went mad with surprise and joy, and while they were grasping at the precious things, the old white-haired man approached Zwalu and said, Oh, oh, marvelous stranger, know that I am a magician, and by my art I learned that this land, which has been without a king for many a long day, would find a just, wise, and righteous ruler in a wonder-working stranger, <clears throat> whom we should meet traveling along this road today. Accept, then, our kingdom." Come and rule over our people, and we will honor you as our Khan and your companion as Grand Vizier to the end of our days. 
The crowd had grown by this time very silent, listening, and at the end of the speech they set up a shout that echoed to the very clouds. Seizing Zwalu and Sauron in their arms, they bore them with laughter and singing to the palace, where Zwalu was crowned with all pomp and ceremony, and Sauron was made his chief adviser. And so, the two friends lived happily ever after. That is the end of our podcast for this week. Thank you so, so, so much for listening. It's also the end of season one. It's been such a ride. I am so appreciative of all the support that y'all have shown for me. And I can't wait to get back and start working again. Signing off for now, I am Mason Sontag. And this is the end of season one of the Happily Ever After podcast. Bye now.